This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Futurati podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Sherman Cruz. Professor Cruz is the chair of the Association of Professional Futurists, the largest professional foresight association in the world. He is the founder, executive director, and chief futurist of the Center for Engaged Foresight, a strategic foresight and futures innovation firm with global operations based in Manila. He is currently a PhD in Future Studies candidate and scholar at the University of Sunshine Coast, Australia, and the Government of Australia Higher Education by Research Program. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast so that we can keep bringing you this great content. All right, Sherman Cruz, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Good morning. Yeah, thank you very much for the invitation and looking forward uh, to several uh, minutes of uh, conversation about futures <laughs> and beyond. Yeah, we, we managed to grab <laughs> several minutes with Sherman, which if you know you remember from the introduction, is uh, his time is quite precious and quite limited. So thank you for talking to us. Yeah, I have this dying question I wanted to ask you. Should we gamify citizenship? <laughs> and you, you like to talk about gamification of, of things. And, um, you know, as a society, we're really good at punishing people for bad behavior, but we're not good at incentivizing them for good behavior. And so we don't even know for sure what it would be that we would incentivize the, what would qualify as good behavior. But uh, in some respects, uh, China was doing some of that with their... I don't know what they called Sesame credits or social credit scores. Um, so what's your thoughts on gamified citizenship? Yeah, we've had actually a conversation about this uh, several days ago about uh, anticipatory governance and uh, gamification as a system or a method you know, to engage a wider community or public you know, in, in governance. Of course, it all... I would say bottom line is that, you know, can games really fulfill genuine human needs? Uh, not just uh, the physical human needs, but also the emotional and uh, psychological aspects of it. You know, for Asia, uh, that would include, of course, uh, spirituality, you know, as a part of uh, human need. And, uh, of course, uh, reality is pretty quite depressing right now. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> because of the post-COVID-19 situation yeah. and, uh, uh, you know, especially for a country like the Philippines, where I'm currently based uh, and uh, in, in Manila, is that there had been a lot of uh, constraints as far as uh, the delivery, you know, public service and, and support provided to the people. 
but then of course uh, the question arises uh, would this give uh, gaming or gaming systems or gaming industry you know uh, invest uh, more in the next couple of years you know as far as uh, pub public sphere or the public domain is concerned and uh, of course uh, particularly on on in industries that uh, sub uh, provides uh, services you know uh, in in the public domain i've seen in many researches that there is a an increased you know a surge in increase as far as uh, gaming uh, uh, gaming investments are, are concerned particularly in public service uh, delivery now about the question of whether or not can we game uh, citizenship yes uh, definitely uh, because we are all you know most of the interfaces and the communications that we have right now especially in learning in development you know talks about public policy uh, is, is is done virtually right right and yeah. uh, we've seen the, the limits of uh, of zoom platforms and other uh, current uh, platforms communication platforms and collaborators collaborative platforms like miro uh, uh is, is is concerned and uh now uh, and then of course the question also comes in where in the oecd recently published a report uh, on you know how might the OECD engage uh, deeper in 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 collaborating with its partners, you know, from different parts of the world, particularly, you know, uh, not just the OECD countries but non-OECD uh, regions as well, is uh, the the emergence of the idea. Of course, everybody knows about this uh, the 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 emergence of the virtual world, wherein. Uh, conversations on public service delivery and when they become you know uh, totally digitized is that uh, in the process it, it it will become more vivid and even more real you know that reality cannot uh, replicate right uh, we we've seen you know i've used uh, virtual reality in, in playing games right and then yeah. apparently when you're into vr it it, it makes uh, you know the real real even more vivid while they are games apparently the brain cannot determine whether what's real as we know it now and what games are because you know in some researches and studies you know the brain is helpless but to respond uh, with the stimuli that the virtual reality you know uh, gives us so as far as gamif gamifying citizenship is concerned yes that is 100 percent possible especially so when investments in, in virtuality and augmented reality increases and becomes available and accessible to everyone. So, so when I think of gamification, I think of, you know, an app that tracks your participation in a program or something like that and gives you scores and badges and things like that. So Audible does this. I get the night owl badge if I listen to, you know, an audio book past a certain time of the night or, or, or what have you. So what are some different ways in which gamification might impact citizenship? Like how might a government roll something like that out? Yeah, of course, you know, this leader, uh, uh, leader badges, and I know these are the traditional types of games or gaming systems, right? Especially right. applied in the corporate industry. We've been doing, we've been doing that in the last 10 years, but then uh, gaming is, is even becoming more uh, deeper and more engaged. And, you know, they, they've started to wonder, you know, the gaps, you know, the weaknesses in the traditional types of uh, gaming systems. Now, uh, let's just say, uh, uh, as far as uh, gamifying uh, citizenship and citizen citizen engagement are concerned, is uh, for example in the process of referendum. 
of course, before a referendum can take place, you know, the definitely you'll get to have uh, some sort of uh, an agenda on how to raise the awareness of a community or a citizen on a particular issue. Let's just say the issue is uh, COVID-19 pandemic you know, and gave me fying awareness and promotion and campaign as far as, uh, let's just say, vaccination is concerned. You know, how might you be able to give me fi uh, uh, promoting and campaigning that people should, or perhaps by choice, of course, that's by choice. You know, we can mandate, we can't mandate people to get vaccinated. Right. But if you try to gamify it uh, by using, for example, existing platforms that we have like mobile phones, you download the app, and in the app, of course, you're going to have to provide uh, your personal uh, data and details, right? And then how do you gamify the process of engagement, you know, with uh, with uh, health delivery systems or, or public health uh, providers is that other than providing the data that you have is that uh, when I get to participate in the process of vaccination, you know, what do I get in, in the process, not just uh, through... Uh, for example, registering for it, but uh, having the ability to have a conversation with a, with a wider community about the side effects, uh, about uh, you know the, the 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 positive effects. You know how might you be able to contribute? You know in 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 in, in raising the level of uh, you know uh, community or flak immunity. You know as as uh, in 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 the in the short run, where perhaps let's just say for many countries, you know they might be able to do you know, flak or achieve flak immunity in the next three to five years. Right. So uh, if you gamify it, uh, you know there are many pro ways of doing it of doing that. No, uh, of course the design is is another issue, but uh, gamification really the intent is, uh, you know, to enable you know public service delivery systems uh, to participate more and even better. I'm going to give you one, another example. Is uh, for example in the Philippines there was one developer from the U.S. You know that when you play this game, you know you get to earn at least like around a hundred and two hundred dollars a month. Right, but just by playing this game, and okay. then the algorithm from the back end is uh, really about getting data as far as you know societal and demographic indicators are concerned, and people's choices when they play that game. Wow. You know, without them, you know, of course you have to sign up. Right. But uh, people in the Philippines, especially in 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 those living below the poverty area, you know, uh, uh, download this application and. Uh, they get the incentives that when they play this game, they'll 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 uh, earn an income of at least like around two hundred or three hundred dollars minimum. But you can you know uh, earn more income you know the more you spend in playing the game, and of course the more points that you get. But yeah. then uh, of course from the back end, you know these games uh, are are funded by you know international financing institution, you know to get data. You know, right. for economic and societal development. Yeah. So imagine so, that. So we we had played around with a scenario where um, the idea of of rewarding something uh, a, a natural act in a in society, just the idea of creating a smile on somebody else's face, you would get a point for that. And so, depending on how many smiles you created around a city, um, that could generally change the attitude of a community dramatically 
and then um, I, I don't know what you get as a reward for that. Maybe you uh, um, uh, uh, get uh, somebody to smile back twice at you, but <laughs> Starbucks <laughs> gift card, a Starbucks gift card. <laughs> well, so ma- ma- maybe I'm just not a very good person, but my my first thought is, okay, well then I would just pay people to smile at me, or I, I would like set up a smile exchange program to <laughs> to like break the algorithm. And, and I don't know, like I'm, I'm a machine learning engineer, so I think a lot about how these algorithms can go wrong, but. Yeah, that seems ripe for. Uh, I, I like the idea. I like the spirit of it, right? So, but you have to have some check in place to make sure that it's genuine smiles. It's like a, a Duquesne smile, not just somebody smiling at you and you smiling at them. So that you yeah, can well, play. we've all seen on Black Mirror how it can go woefully <laughs> wrong. So oh, yes, right. definitely yes, right. right. <laughs> yeah, we don't uh, want that to happen. No. So. Yeah, we, we've I've seen that in my kids, and uh, I bet you know uh, you've seen this in, in 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 many kids and even adults. Right, that games can actually like change people's behavior. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, yeah. But by, by playing a game over time, consciously or unconsciously, the game, the gamer, you know, uh, the game, you know, can can change people's behavior, right? Right, right, uh, in, right. including decision making when right. they're faced with particular situation or circumstances yeah gaming is serious are. gaming isn't a yes. game i guess you could say <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah uh, but gamers you know but but gamers consider games uh, as as games non-gamers aren't right right yeah so um being in your position right now as the head of the association of professional futurists um, obviously, you come into contact with lots of unusual ideas and lots of different perspectives. Um, what What are some of the things that are really catching your attention right now? Yeah, uh, of course, one is is, is uh, the, the issue of uh, foresight, the future of uh, futurists and foresight organizations. Okay, you know that's one. Uh, recently, we had a conversation at the Global Foresight Summit about that. And, uh, you know, folks, we've gathered uh, the World Future Studies Federation, the Millennium Project, and uh, the Asia Pacific Futures Network, which is a network, not an organization uh, in Asia, and uh, the Association of Professional Futurists, which, of course, I represented the APF. And then what I learned in that conversation is that there is an emerging, I would say, a difference, you know, on how you know, generation three futurists organize and collaborates and compared to generation one, generation two futurists in the 80s and and, and, and the 90s. One is that, you know, futures and foresight organizations that were organized uh, 10 or 20 years ago, uh, how how do I say it? Uh, You know, revolve, these organizations, uh, you know, emerge based on similar interests and preferences for particular tools and methodologies. Right. right. You know, like the, org- the organizers of the APF, you know, organize, other than the issues, of course, but if you try to look into the APF foresight competency model, so uh, they, you can see the tools and methods that American futurists use and uh, that they prefer and that they want to promote uh, in, in the foresight process. Now, uh, of course, which is, of course, uh, during those period until now, uh, just recently, that, uh, you know, it wasn't really uh, uh, that uh, global, but rather it is really a North American organization. Now, if you go to the World Future Studies Federation, uh, this uh, folks who, of course, that's 50 years old. But then if you try to look into their history in the last 20 years, is that you know, they have a preference for social, cultural, civilizational foresight. 
conversations and, and practices. You know, while APF tried to um, uh, make the the agenda or the focus on consulting, corporate consulting or professional foresight, as they would like to say it, and the WFSF is more concerned about the academic, you know, and uh, the future studies, and then of course civilizational methods as, as accentuated. And for the APF, which was which was just recently organized five years ago, you know, it's merely a network. It does not want to make its the 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 uh, the the community professional or academic, but rather it's just a fluid network we're in, you know, based on trust. How are those methodologies different? So if, if corporate futurism consulting with uh, with uh, businesses versus thinking civilizationally versus thinking academically, I mean, those those were kind of the three paradigms you laid out. How are they different? I I I think there's no difference, just the intent and purpose. Well, how are the intents know? and purposes uh, different? Uh, like, for example, for consulting, right? Like you get paid to do uh, foresight work. You know, you, you, you some of the tools that were framed in the APF are, is actually being used by academic as well, right? Yeah. So uh, the, the World Future Studies Federation used these tools and methodologies for academic purposes like research and publication and, uh, uh, you know, academic advisory, so forth and so on. However, for the APF, it's, it's, it's you know, the, if they use, for, for example, they use the tool, the Roundtable Delphi, right? The method you know, for, for horizon scanning is that they use it for uh, planning, strategy development, and, you know, th those kinds of stuff that, that are related. Now, uh, the, the, the organizations back then were like a membership driven Right. That in order for you to be a part of the club, you have to you have to be a part of the club, you know. But then what emerged in that conversation is that, you know, if you can futurist and foresight organization move from the club to beyond the club, where in futurist and foresight organization, regardless of where you're a part of, is that the aim really is that to increase and amplify the influence of futurist and foresight organizations around the world, you know, uh, to influence a global public policy like in, for example, climate change, so forth and so on, you know, because features and foresight organization thinks about the long term. And of course, UN is catching up on that. The World Economic Forum has an agenda on the long term, but you don't really see, you know, perhaps uh, rarely, you know, futures and foresight organization taken for their statement uh, as something influences uh, public policy later on, you know, at least at the global level. And then, you know, uh, can, can futurist and foresight organization move beyond the club? That was the issue. And then for generation three futurists, yes, that's possible. Because like, for example, me, you know, uh, I'm currently the chair of the APF. And I'm also uh, the chair for the Philippine Nod of the Millennium Project. And I started my career as a futurist with the World Future Studies Federation. You know, uh, yes, I'm not saying that it's all too bad, but uh, for generation three futurists is that if you want to intensify and amplify the influence of futurist and foresight organization from the global to the community level, you know, perhaps futurist and foresight uh, practitioners, you know, should think uh, of, uh, you know, moving beyond the club, right? right? The organizations will be there. Right. Yeah. Well, but, so, yes. Well, I was just going to ask how you do that. So, I mean, I... Other than just media outreach, talking to people, publishing papers, what are the strategies you're using to try to increase the impact that futurism has on public policy or um, trade relations or, or whatever else? 
Yes, yes. Uh, what I've learned over the years, you know, I've been practicing features and foresight in the last 12 years, and I've, I've seen, you know, the strength and weakness of, uh, uh, um, of uh, you know, a futurist and foresight practitioner's model of work, right? Like, of course, you have the academic model, you publish, you do research, you publish, and then for some people, they're lucky enough, you know, to participate in some other domains, you know, and then for consulting, of course, some uh, futures in foresight practitioners are really into that uh, consulting and corporate foresight model. Now, what I, I did was to, you know, co-found an organization, which is the Philippine Futures Thinking Society. You know, I tried, we, I tried to improvise and experiment on this model. Uh, create some sort of a society that is beyond the model of a professional foresight organization, but rather it was or, uh, organized and established, you know, to consolidate the influence, the effort, you know, futurist practitioners in the Philippines to amplify its ability to shape public policy and governance. Now, what happened in the last two years is that the Philippine, uh, there wasn't a society yet, but there were people, you know, who were, uh, ha who had, you know, the, the, the ability to influence public policy makers to create the Committee on the Sustainable Development Goals, Innovations and Futures Thinking. That was uh, organized, uh, set up by the Senate in the last two years. But then the issue was, okay, but uh, we need to do foresight uh, for public policy beyond the government because right. really uh, uh, the influence and the process of shaping public opinion need to engage uh, the social civic sector and the pub or the corporate or the bigger public realm, which is uh, beyond the government. So uh, when we organized the Philippine Future Sitting in Society, we're, we're celebrating it now. It's, we're just still, uh, we're, we're, we're one year old. And uh, what happened is that when we, when we were able to get a champion in the Senate, you know, uh, and in, in, of course, in, 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 the, in uh, the champion of the Senate, which is, of course, Senator Pia Cayetano, who is the first chair of the Senate Committee on Futures Thinking, is that uh, we collaborated with her office, you know, uh, to uh, design the process of a public hearing in a futures thinking committee. You know, what we did was, uh, of course, you use foresight for purposes of uh, initially agenda setting, right? So what we did was uh, we, uh, the, the Senate committee uh, uh, has, has done uh, uh, at, at least a bi-weekly committee hearing on future issues, particularly on mobility, food, uh, transportation, health, education, uh, security, among other among other things, and what we did was like in, we invited uh, futurists and foresight practitioners from different parts of the world with a particular expertise uh, of uh, or issue expertise. You know, we, we brought in, of course, uh, the traditional government partners like uh, uh, the World Health Organization, so forth and so on. And then what happened after that? Those series of hearings led to the Philippine government to, you know, put funding on establishing futures research a program you know and futures okay. uh, office within several national government agencies after six months that, that you know, is because during, remarkable yeah yes uh, during during that time uh, we were we were you know the, the philippine government was you know uh, preparing for its uh, budget for this year and again you know by july or september i think uh, at least within that quarter they're going to budget again for next year and uh when the Senate saw, you know, the value of futures and foresight in public policy, you know, the committee and the whole said this is some, this is what we really need. Instead of looking at the trees, you know, we need to have a conversation that enables us to see the forest. 
Okay. Uh, because the, the Philippines has always been operating in a crisis mode or situation. It's always been like that year in, year out. And we've been spending a lot of money for crisis situation, you know, resilience, resilience uh, here and that. But uh, apparently, you know, when you spend money in a crisis situation, you know, it's it's just it's good for two to three months, but you have to invest a lot of money that, you know, if, if the government does not have the money, for example, right. you know, to address a COVID-19 situation, you know, they're going to get a loan, like billions of dollars in loan, you know, from Asian Development Bank or the World Bank for that matter, just to address the three to, uh, next three to five uh, months of uh, issue or, or, or crisis situation. So that was our premise, right? Yeah. That we were not saying that foresight is a solution, but foresight you know, it's something that you need to look into because it enables you to look at the future in multiple ways. And when you have the ability and capability, at least from an institutional perspective, you know, to search, to scan for alternatives, it will enable you to generate multiple solutions as well. And not just uh, uh, now. Now, just quickly, uh, Thomas, is that what happened after this six months, the seven months uh, of conversation is that the, the, the Philippine Senate have provided funding for futures and foresight work with the Department of Health, the Department of Education, the Commission on Higher Education. Uh, now the Department of Foreign Affairs is looking into that, the Department of National Defense as well, you know, the military, the Navy. So uh, there is a national uh, effort to mainstream futures thinking, you know, at least at this point uh, in, in the government. Okay. Um let, let me shift gears a little bit here. Um, you, you're uniquely positioned to be the guy with all the answers. So um, I want to pose this situation for you. Um, in, in 1900, the world base of knowledge was doubling roughly every 100 years. And now it is speeded up to the point where the world base of knowledge is doubling every 12 hours. And so... Um, how does the world change when we keep moving up the exponential growth curve and the knowledge base is doubling every 12 minutes? Uh, and I want a three-word answer on that. It gets rough. It <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in fact, you know, uh, again, you know, uh, we had that conversation at the Global Foresight Summit. And the premise of, uh, of that conversation is that how might we be able to make uncertainty as an asset? Okay. Right? Yeah, that's how a great question. How might we be able to make uncertainty as an asset? And, uh, of course, we have tools you know, to, to actually do that, right? Uh, capability, capacity, of course, a futurist or foresight or people who are future literate, institutional or personal, you know, uh, would, I, I would say, you know, have to a certain extent has the capability you know, to be creative enough, you know, we called it in the Philippines, makata or malikain, you know, creative enough uh, to make sense of uh, the unknown, you know, uh, to to create and invent and uh, make sense of uh, uncertainty or something that's invisible to you, you know, the, you know, uh, use information. But, but then again, I have uh, this uh, view that in order for you to make uncertainty as an asset, and we've been having this conversation in futures and foresight over the years about, you know, that futures and foresight is, uh, well, well, you know, the idea, the premise of that, well, there is movement. You know, there, what, what we need to accentuate in futures practice is the concept of stillness, right? 
Okay. Because there are a lot of ideas going on right now. It's so fast. It's not even perhaps exponential anymore, right? It's quantum. We're moving from an exponential <laughs> technology growth to quantum. Uh, yeah. I would say perhaps in the next three to five years, uh, there is a white report in Australia about that, that, you know, as far as, uh, uh, you know, the future of geopolitics is concerned, leadership in geopolitics is that when you have the power for uh, to access quantum technology, you might be able to generate a new type of leadership, which is quantum leadership. That's what the white paper in Australia is telling us. You know, uh, now about that is that when you're faced with this kinds of situation where everything is changing so fast and there are a lot of innovations going on, you know, what, you know, how might a futurist and foresight practitioner do other than applying the AI, the tools that are available to us right now, it gets more sophisticated in processing that. You know, perhaps we need to learn how to pause, right? Yeah. You know, just to make sense of all of these things. Right. So uh, what I was saying, at least in the context of, let's just say, philosophy of the future, is that while there is movement, perhaps now is the time for futurists and foresight practitioner to see the value of stillness in order for us to contemplate better on, on the changes that is happening right now or could the change in the future in order for us, uh, you know, to, to have a better <laughs> reflection, you know, of, of, of what could or should ought to be, you right. know, as far as the future is, is concerned. So l let's broaden that a little bit. I, I like the idea of stillness and just pausing for a moment and using that as a way to sift through the, the different ideas that are on offer. But more generally, you know, obviously you have a, a very strong interest in the methodology of futurism. And as futurists, we also have a very strong interest in the methodology of futurism. We've had people on who do scenario planning. We've had people on who do uh, foresight and forecasting. So how do you just approach the task of figuring out what tomorrow is going to look like? What are some of the tools in the tool belt? Yeah, uh, of course, you know, the tools that and the methods that I'm using depends on the framework that I would like to use. You know, of course, I've, I've developed a framework uh, in my practice that I've been using in the last 10 years, which is uh, I call the engaged foresight framework, right? However, that framework had evolved uh, when uh, when I had interfaced, you know, uh, at, at the global level, local and community level. Now, uh, I would just like to accentuate here in this context uh, about uh, the UNESCO Futures uh, Literacy Framework. You know, not my, my, my consulting framework, but I would like to use, uh, uh, accentuate uh, the UNESCO Futures Literacy Framework, which I find valuable as far as uh, democratizing futures literacy is concerned. One is, of course, uh, the reveal phase. You know, there are three phases in the UNESCO Futures Literacy Framework. One is the reveal phase. Now, what is the reveal phase is that, you know, you give a people, you know, the space you know, in the platform, the opportunity to just reveal what's obvious. Just reveal what's obvious, you know, uh, let, you know, uh, give them the opportunity to bring out what they have as far as the future is concerned on artificial intelligence uh, or satellite technology or frontier technology linked to global issues like food, water, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So now once this uh, obvious, you know, low hanging fruit, black mirror, pop type of futures come out, you know, and then that's where I come in to start questioning people's assumptions. You know, why do you think the future like that? What have informed and influenced you to imagine the future as such, right? And then you ask the question, is this the future that you want? Is this the future that you truly desire? You know, if and then they reflect on that and they say, no, Sherman, this is not the future that I want. This is the future that I know that's obvious 
This is what the reports are telling us from the banks, from a futurist, uh, from the UN, so forth and so on. But this is not the future that I want. If you ask me personally, you know, and then th that's where they start questioning those assumptions. That's where they start questioning the future, right? So now, yes. Oh, I, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. Yep. And then after the reveal phase is that the second day would be about the reframing phase, right? And then there are tools and methodologies uh, that you could actually use depending on how you want to design it or facilitate the workshop is that reframing phase. Of course, that's where the scenario comes in, right? That where you, you give the people opportunity to reframe the future that is obvious to them and then have them the ability, you know, put them in a conversation of reframing the future. You know, it doesn't matter what the tools and methods are, uh, depending on the purpose and context and the agenda of the workshop, is that there are tools and methods that are, are good you know, uh, in, in, in reframing. Because the, the purpose of the tools and methods is not just about gen to generate data, but to put people in a conversation of uh, reframing, right? So you have scenarios, you have the causal layered analysis, and then you have also games. That's where you know, I put the games in my process, the reframing phase. And then after the reframing phase is that when you see that there are that there are different kinds and different types of imagining the future, uh, of course you know you you just don't have a conversation about you know the preferred future because otherwise it becomes linear, right? So what you're gonna do is that you have to put them in, in a conversation where in you know you try to consolidate the insights. Right, that's the third phase of the UNESCO Futures Literacy Framework, wherein you don't decide what's preferred or decide or desired, but rather put them in a conversation to consolidate the insight. What insights did I get in the conversation of uh, of a particular alternative future scenario, bad or good, worst or weird, whatever that might be? So you try to consolidate the insights in this for alternative futures world. And then what happens in the third phase about insights is that that is where people feel uh, f feel empowered and realize that this is what futures literacy is all about. It's all about, you know, uh, reflecting and knowing what the insights are, you know, because, you know, insights are the things that you haven't seen before or known before. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. Right. And that and when you can't unsee it, it bothers you. Right. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So when you when you have these insights and then you talked about the real thing, you know, linking the insights from the future to Monday morning questions, which is, of course, the next steps, you know, what I'm going to do on Monday morning. Now that I have these insights from the future with me now, it's pretty vivid and visible. I cannot sleep, you know, because it's really like, wow, I'm so excited and I feel like the future is an adventure. And then what I'm going to do on Monday morning. So uh, that is how I, I do the features literacy framework and process. And what I realize is that, you know, uh, mon it, it always leads to Monday morning next steps. You know, suddenly, you know, some folks from here and that would call you, Sherman, I would like to uh, embed uh, uh, futures literacy in, in the way I, I, I do planning, strategy, policymaking, so forth and so on. Okay, so to make sure I have it clear, the, the first step is to elicit their own views of the future, like what they consider obvious. You say, okay, what's the future of the blockchain? And they say, well, soon all currencies will be handled on the blockchain. That's just to them, it seems clear that's the trend, right? And then you question their assumptions. You say, okay, what is it that leads you to believe that? And then after that, you 
have them evaluate that vision of the future that they've painted. Is, is this actually a world you want to live in? And then you reframe it, and then there's sort of consolidation and trying to figure out how it's actually going to connect to the next steps. Is that right? Right. Is there a, is there a structured approach to challenging the assumptions? Because it seems to me like that's one of the most valuable steps, right? I mean, if, yes. you just, if you just get a person talking about what they think the future will be, like artificial intelligence, there's going to be a lot of garbage there. I mean, a lot of people just they think they understand where it's going, and they don't at all. They don't understand the underlying technology or what the long-term trends sort of portend. So how do you go about probing a person's intuitions and assumptions about the future? You know, I... Yeah. In, in fact, what I normally do is that, you know, I don't put people right away into conversation about the future. You know, I, I start with uh, a questioning process and I gamify the process, you know, uh, and uh, the, the, the game that I use is what we call the Rip Van Winkle exercise. You know, the yeah. Rip Van Winkle story. I use right. the Rip Van Winkle story, you know, to, uh, to you know, to put context in the process of gaming the process of questioning so you you so you put people to sleep then is that what you do <laughs> oh yes 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 <laughs> yeah i put them to sleep and then of course like creep van winkle you know they suddenly woke up in a, a brave new world 20 years right you know they slept in deep slumber for 20 or 30 years, depending on the context of the workshop. Right. You know, if it's artificial intelligence, you know, you could say 2040, suddenly they wake up in 2040, and then they, they were approached by a being in the year 2040. It depends on how they imagine it, whether it's a person or artificial intelligence or, or, or a robot. And then the robot gave them the opportunity to ask five questions that they want. Now, what, what questions are you going to ask the robot in artificial intelligence by the year 2040, right? Right. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, and then if you have like ten people in a group who's uh, exploring the future of artificial intelligence on, uh, 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 of course, uh, 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 artificial intelligence in the future of uh, let's just say water, and then they're gonna have to generate five questions that links AI and water. Right? Okay. Okay. Yeah, and then what you get at, at, uh, in in thirty minutes of uh, asking questions is that you've got like around. Most of the time, what I get is like I have 20 or 30 questions about the future of AI in, 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 in the water industry or in water resource, something like that. Okay. Right? Yeah. And then you, when you have this uh, 20 or 30 questions, and then you have to put them in a conversation wherein, okay, of all the questions that you've asked, what's the most compelling question? Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So could you do that with any pairing of technologies or issues? Could I just say, okay, like, could, could I put... Uh, you know, blockchain, AI, quantum computing, you know, a, a bunch of slips of paper and a hat. And then, you know, water security, food security, climate change, geopolitics in another hat and just pull them out and just generate pairs and, and have questions uh, about the relationships of these two. Like, like, does it always work that way? Or do you go into a workshop with the idea that we need to think about water? Uh, you know, uh, that, that was just an illustration, okay. an example. Yep. But uh, of course, it depends on the theme of, of, of that workshop right so but you can uh, you know uh, if you want to do it as a group or if you want to do it as some sort of uh, 
a, a, a you know at least two people are involved into the conversation you can actually do that but uh, the point is that what i've learned is that when people are asking questions you know they start to wonder right yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, yes, yes. Instead of saying that this is the future uh, or making statements about the future, which is pretty quite arrogant, right? Right. So, mm. but you put when you put them in a, in a space of asking questions, you know, uh, initially in the first three minutes, you know, it's just pretty like, you know, challenging to ask questions about the future. But when they start to get the grip or grasp of it, like you know, they're in that space of questioning that you, you know, you'll be surprised by the questions that they're asking. You know, I haven't thought about this before. You know, this type of question. Yeah, like but very, very likely, if you have a room full of bankers, they're probably gonna, <laughs> they're, they talk about water. Their eyes are gonna roll back in their head. So. Well, they can't see their reflections in the water because they don't have souls. Right? So, no. <laughs> kidding, 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 kidding. <laughs> bankers are perfectly fine. Uh, um, in the evaluative step, right, you, you have these people paint this picture and then you ask them, well, is that the kind of world you want to live in? Is Are there any themes that emerge out of that process? Like, are, are there visions of the future that people consistently reject or are you kind of surprised at the variety of futures that people are, are okay with? You know, so, uh, in, in the initial process, of course, they are not conscious and aware that uh, later on when they see it, it's, it's that majority of the questions that they ask, like most of the time, like 70% of the questions that they ask are highly te uh, technological type of questions. Right. Right. And then I, I try to show them that uh, those this aspect, you know, for them to realize that is that I use inspect analysis as well. Like, uh, you know, it's the drivers of change uh, method. So the inspect analysis was developed by, you know, a futurist uh, in, in Australia. And uh, of course, we have Steeple, Steep, Pastel, you know, those kinds of stuff. Right. But inspect analysis is that it includes culture into the drivers of change uh, uh, framework. Like, inspect is an acronym for ideas and innovation, nature, society, politics, economics, culture, and technology. Sometimes we put the plus plus uh, that includes right, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, which is of, of course like if you're into Asia, is that you know you can just use pastel or pest or steep or steeple because Asians have heritage, you know heritage is a very critical and crucial element of uh, futures uh, and foresighting. Of course, you cannot just ignore culture here, right? right? Uh, and uh, ethics and spirituality, because like Islamic communities, you know, it's like, you know, it's, 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 they don't dichotomize uh, spirituality and government or the state, right? It's embedded into their narrative. So how might you be able to, you know, bring those uh, perspectives in uh, about, you know, questions regarding spirituality or how might uh, spirituality or culture play in, into the process of uh, development or futuring? So uh, I've asked them to like place these questions, categorize them. Initially, they don't categorize these questions. And then I've asked them later on to categorize that. And then they try to look into the most compelling questions. So of the drivers that they have, you know, what are the top three drivers that has the most compelling questions, right? So uh, in, in, in that, they would see, oh, my God, you know, we're, all, we're only asking about the technological questions. And then they would realize as well that most of the technological development or when, when the market rolls out a technolo technology or an algorithm is that embedded into this development are also ethical questions, right? That's when they start the ethical questions about, you know, uh, deploying technology like uh, facial recognition. 
right? It's not right. just about adopting or integrating technology into your system, but rather, you know, the ethical questions were in that's where futuring in foresight becomes grounded and informed by, uh, of course, you know, that, that community's perspective when the ethical, the cultural comes in. So how do you approach the problem of ethics and technology? Do you have a framework that you use or do you kind of let the conversation guide how people think about it? Yeah, I just, uh, I don't use any tool or method because we, we don't have that yet. Unless, of course, you use the causal layered analysis, right? The causal layered analysis is an analysis that enables you to deepen the conversation, not just the news headline and system, but also the worldviews and myth and metaphor that people have. So when people engage in conversation about worldviews and the mythology and the metaphors that they have is where culture does, uh, uh, emerges, right? Or the ethical questions uh, emerges. Yeah. Yeah. So what is causal layer analysis? I actually don't know what that is. Yeah. Uh, causal layered analysis is a tool that was uh, developed, uh, designed by Swahili Neyatule in the 1990s. And uh, over the years, uh, it has published like around two books on causal layered analysis, case studies. You know, the first one was, of course, the CLA reader. And now they, they uh, several years ago, I think five years or seven years ago, uh, the book CLA 2.0 was published. And I was told by Swahil that the CLA 3.0 is coming up. So it's uh, for Swahil, the premise was that there are the different levels and layers of truth. Right. And it was informed, of course, uh, uh, by a, a social Indian philosopher that uh, consciousness uh, can is, is has layers. Right. One is uh, the conscious mind and the subconscious mind, which is pretty quite popular in the West. Right. But then, of course, in Indian philosophy, you know, they have three other layers, which is, uh, of course, uh, the supplemental level. You know, imagination, right? right? It's not subconscious. Imagination is not subconscious. Imagination is supramental, right? Intuition is supramental. It is not the domain of intellect, right? So it's intuitional. And then you also have uh, the subliminal, which is, of course, where in noble you know, virtue and values, you know, uh, uh, are, is in that plane, like conscience, right? The subliminal mind, the sublime. And then, of course, in Asian culture, you also have the subtle causal mind is that the premise in the idea is that while there is data, there is technology, there is movement, tools and methods and ideologies and worldviews, there is also divine or cosmic intervention. That is the subtle causal layer aspect of it. You know, for Asia, you know, while we have all of these things, there is divine inter intervention. You know, it might it doesn't necessarily mean religious or but, but the spiritual aspect of it, you know. So, so, so is, that we how, all know, is that how CLA works? You, you just you just try to parse out. No, no, no. Okay. We don't uh, tell them that, of course. But uh, <laughs> the, the premise, the premise, you know, behind the CLA analysis is that to cover multiple layers of truth. Okay. okay. That people has it works for 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 Asia, in fact, for indigenous communities. You know, you, you know, you can just put indigenous communities in a technological conversation without these people having to. Uh, you know, reflect on the value of their indigenous ways of knowing, which is in fact, right now, when you talked about regenerative futures or the idea of regeneration is where, you know, the indigenous philosophy or narratives, uh, you know, emerges. Like recently we had a workshop in, in uh, two years ago together with the United Nations Framework for Climate Change. We, we put at least around a hundred people, the UNFCC branded them as visionaries 
you know, from different sectors like philosophers, academics, left, communists, socialists, uh, venture capitalists. Uh, you know, you put all of this uh, technology developer from the automotive, uh, all kind of industries. It was an experiment. You know, and then, of course, you also have uh, indigenous champions, the civil society group. And then apparently what emerged in that one week of workshop, we used the UNESCO Futures Literacy Framework and the Moonshot Thinking Approach. What emerged in that workshop was that we were surprised that apparently what, what came up was that if we want to increase our ability to adapt in the climate change world, you know, now is the time to look into indigenous ways of unknowing. You know, because indigenous ways of knowing embedded into the way they see, you know, I wouldn't say progress, I might be wrong because, you know, or perhaps development or evolution, you know, okay. and complex systems is uh, the, uh, I, is, is, is that nature is embedded into their discourse, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, if we want to enable ourselves you know, to increase our capacity to adapt in the climate change world. Like, for example, the scenario was, what if global temperature levels in the year 2040 is 2.3 degrees, right? By that time, you know, how might, how might we be able to increase you know, our ability to generate and develop adaptability type, uh, te uh, technology adaptable technologies, uh, you know, in, in that kind of situation? And apparently what came out is that, you know, uh, you know, indigenous ways and finding tools and methods is something that we need to look at, you know, uh, in order for us to heal and uh, regenerate. So I'm, I'm not really clear on what that means, indigenous ways mm. of knowing. Like, can you give me mm. an example? Like, look, what would be an example of us sitting in that workshop saying 2040, it's 2.3 degrees Celsius higher. What would it mean to take an indigenous approach to trying to solve that problem? Yeah, uh, I'm going to give you an example like Afrofuturism, okay. right? So Afrofuturism has a, a, a I would say, a, a, a unique and novel uh, take on foresight and futures. You know, when they start their foresight uh, workshop, you know, I've participated in one Afrofuturism workshop is that they've asked me if I know who were my great grandmother and great grandfather were, what, what, what their names were seven generations before me. Ah. Okay. Yeah, and I had no idea, my God, who they were. I don't know what, who who they were, what Some their people. names are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a guy and a girl. But apparently, yeah, yeah. But but apparently, for some civilizations, like or communities, like China, you know, told me that in China, you know, they have a record, a civil service record of their great grandfather names in the last five thousand years, right? Wow. In terms of framing foresight, you know, that that means a lot of things. You know, if you ask the aborigines about that, of course, they have their names. But for uh, countries like the Philippines, who have been colonized in the last 500 years, I went back to my grandmother and asked her if he knew who her great-grandfather was. You know, two or three generations before, he, she didn't even know. So, know. so I... I agree that that gives you a different kind of perspective. Like when you have yep. that sense of deep time, eight, 10 generations past, then, then you do have a, a sense of continuity. And that, that influences the way you think about the future because that's projecting continuity forward. Is there, uh, is there anything more concrete than that? Like are you taking, is it just a matter of reframing the way you approach the problem by considering different perspectives? Or do they have actual technologies or actual ways of interfacing with the natural world that you can use as well? 
Oh yes, uh, Lake City is a science right now. Of course, when we, you, you know, uh, I, I think one of uh, the, the the most accurate, if you want to look, I wouldn't say accurate, if you want to look for some illustrations on how a you know, culture, you know, influences uh, like urban designs, you go to Australia, right? Like for example, uh, if you try to look into how you know Australian uh, futurists and foresight practitioners, uh, it, uh, the, the result of their outcome and work, like for example, in urban spaces, they have this idea of rewilding, right? In the city centers. So how might rewilding look like, you know, in, in city centers? You know, if you talk out, uh, like for example, in the Philippines, I just had a, a workshop about uh, you know, food security or food sovereignty futures. And what emerged in that workshop when indigenous ways of ideas or designs, you know, was integrated as a driver of change, a particular indigenous myth or myth mythologies or heritage or narrative is that the idea of, you know, why instead of vertical farming, why don't we go for spiral farming? You know, you have the technology, the lab, but you don't design your verti future vertical farming like how the US or the Europe does it, but uh, you try to redesign the concept of you know, the idea of vertical farming with the idea of uh, spiral farming, which is community-based, right? Uh, not necessarily within labs, but within uh, houses and households and communities. And then of course, you know, the, the intricacy of the design you know, could come later on because you're only trying to generate the narratives and some images here. But the idea of spiral farming, you know, is different from the concept of vertical farming, right. which is of course, you know, developing countries does not have the money or the capital to actually like employ, you know, the technologies that they have in the US as far as vertical farming is concerned, because you're talking about community level types of future farming which is of course land is definitely also an issue. So uh, it's innovation in the process by uh, acknowledging the value of uh, your myth and your uh, community narrative. And when you talk about communicating foresight, it's even more uh, better because of course you have to communicate all of these scenarios and these things, right? And you have to involve the community into the process. Of course. And uh, uh, indigenous approaches, you know, can, make the the process of uh, influencing public opinion and public policy communicating foresight much easier so in in your practice uh sherman do you uh do you focus on specific industries ah yes 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 so uh my focus really is that uh, on on cities you know uh yeah uh, cities okay yeah and, and so public policy anticipatory governance yeah so you have a specific entry point into cities then in are the cities that you work with generally in the Philippines or are they in other countries uh, around the area? Uh, yes, yes. I, I did a smart city uh, futures visioning workshop for like around 30 cities in the U.S. in partnership with the Cities Today Institute. And, uh, you know, I, I did workshops. Uh, mostly of my project are in Asia, like Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, you know, Vietnam, Cambodia, developing uh, states or develop at least, you know, emerging tigers in, in, in Southeast Asia, you know, but uh, I've got several workshops also in, in, in the Middle East. Yep. Come coming up. So, uh, yeah. So as, um, as you're working through, I mean, the entire world is trying to come out of the, the COVID pandemic right now. Um, how, from your perspective, how has the world changed? uh coming out of this what's what's different what's new what um 
what things that were common in the past can we throw out the window because they don't work anymore? Yeah, uh, what's apparent to me and what, what what's really struck me was, uh, of course, at least this in the public sector, in the public uh, domain, is that, you know, there's a surge of interest in futures and foresight. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's one, right? So, and another one is that now folks are now more more open to innovation and uh, weird uh, thinking, right? Yeah. So before, you know, it's pretty quite difficult and challenging to engage folks into a conversation of outliers, right? They would have just listened to you. But now they see the value of it. And yeah, yeah they're reflecting and contemplating in, on it. And they're now saying that uh, actually the pandemic is a portal, you know, to a new world. <laughs> like yeah. in, in a workshop that we did in 2019 about the future of education, you know, uh, uh, because of the pandemic, everybody's talking about digitization, right? right. But right. apparently, in 2019, you know, they were looking at digitizing everything or digitizing things in 2030, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> we took crazy. the COVID expressway into the future. Like, we had no yeah. choice but to solve that problem. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yes. Now it's like everybody's in. Count me in, right? right like right. this is something that we need to invest and look into and just figure out. Yeah, there's nothing quite as motivating as not having any other option. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So having no I mean, choice but to get it right is, is really motivating. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, the, this, the whole working from home shift um, and being able to work from anywhere, actually, uh, that that is such a dramatic shift. I mean, people were wanting to do that. People were wanting to make a change, and there was slow, uh, methodical progress in that direction. But all of a sudden, everything shifted. Uh, just a complete 180 degree shift, right. and and now we're finding out all the pros and cons of working from home or working yes. fr working from an RV or from a van down by the river. <laughs> as long as it has 5G, then I don't see any reason why you couldn't. Yeah, do that. as long as you have 5G, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, about work from home, of course, we 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 we've heard you know, some anticipation about, you know, the beauty of work from home back then, like seven years ago, right? When we ask about, okay, what's your desired and preferred future about the future of work? You know, the work from home is always there, like it's central to the future of work. But then what I learned too, is that now that we're here, is that looking back, we haven't really anticipated so much. You know, we knew what, what work from home was, but we don't know what it felt like really right. about yeah. what was working from home. Right. Well, we know what the challenges were, but apparently, you know, it's it's far more challenging now. And then people are clamoring for some alternatives to work from home. Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, when you're when you're working from home and you're raising your kids at home and your kids are oh, going yes. to school at home and you're living in the home, suddenly the home is just not big enough. No. Uh, so yeah. suddenly you need like a, a, a three story home that's on. Uh, yes. Yeah. And so. Yeah, we're 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 finding out all of these things, and and one of the things I've I've realized is that a lot of people, when they've had when we were shut down uh, during the 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 COVID uh, early stages, that people had time to think. Uh, as a period of introspection, and as they looked at their life, and a lot of them were coming to the conclusion that, is this really where I wanted to be at this point in my life? And they've they've. Uh, it's a unanimous no, and uh, they're they're all saying I really want something with more meaning and purpose. And so we're seeing this dramatic shift of people switching jobs, 
Um, and it looks like it's somewhere upwards of 40% of all people are changing to a different job wow. right now. And, wow. um, and so we're, we're in that massive job transition. And companies that were normally pretty, it was an easy thing to just run an ad and suddenly you had all the people you needed to, to operate your business. That's not so easy anymore. Right. Because people uh, have gotten a taste of doing something else and they just don't care to apply for a regular job anymore. Um, it's, and so we have different sets of motivations, different sets of circumstances. And, and so it's like uh, we just taken the rule book for life in 2019. We threw it out the window and nobody's bothered to write the new rule book just yet. So we're trying to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in fact, uh, yeah, that's just a good point about meaning, right? Like if we try to, uh, you know, uh, just try to reflect back on the conversation that we had about work from home uh, in Penang, Malaysia was, uh, you know, it, it, of course, in, in, in a scenario uh, workshop, and I wouldn't say it's a controlled environment, but imaginings, of course, we have uh, to a certain, we have some limitations actually when we imagine things, right? It's yep. always informed by the past and the present that we are in and that we could not really like, you know, uh, perfectly or like in terms of scope, imagine everything, right? As far as our work from home was concerned. Uh, now, realizing now, of course, when people imagine work from home, it was not in the context of a crisis, right? right. It was in the context of economic growth. <laughs> right. right. It was not in a pandemic situation. Right. Now right. that was that was a blind spot, right? right. You know, we right. should do, we should it get was. some futurists so the next time a, <laughs> a, a crisis hits, we'll see we'll see it coming. Somebody yeah. should study yep. that. Yeah, and then uh, another one was that work from home is that uh, it was the desired future. Like you have the the worker working from home with without having to, you know, the the imagining wasn't like you have your kids also studying from home. It yeah, exactly. Like that, right? Exactly. I right. didn't foresee myself sharing all my space with my four-year-old, and my two-year-old. Yes, right. Yeah. So it wasn't like that, right? So, oh my, yeah. You know. So uh, you know, we uh, as far as futures workshop and futures are concerned, these are the things that we have to ask, right? Right. Even us ourselves have definitely real unknown blind spots. Of like, course. Of course. You know, the weird things that we try to imagine isn't actually weird right. <laughs> at all, right? Yeah. Right. Well, this has been excellent. This is, uh, I, I really enjoy listening to how you uh, rationalize things, how you work through things and the, the processes you're using in the background. That's quite yeah. fascinating. And uh, I think you're, um, you're inspiring a whole new generation of futurists now to, to grow up and be part of um, a, a community that at least, if nothing else, thinks more about the future than we did in the past. Um, we've, uh, we, we've been very myopic, um, in how we've looked at, at the world and we get things fed to us through our television or through our computer. And we just, uh, take that as, uh, now everybody takes everything with a huge grain of salt. And we, we, uh, we, we, we're distrustful of so many things right now. Yeah. Um, but, uh, this is, this has been a fascinating conversation and I really, and uh, appreciate you taking the time to uh, to comment on a few of these items. Yeah, appreciate it, Sherman. Yeah, well, thank you so much, and we wish you the best as you move forward, and uh, 
Hopefully you grow the APF membership up to a thousand or so. We'll we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You should In fact, get, you know that that is one of the conversations that we're having right now. Yeah, you should you should figure out how to gamify it. Yeah. I think. If, uh, yes, yes, yeah. Uh, we're uh, actually gamifying it. Yeah, right? we're looking at gamifying the process actually for the next two years. Yeah, at a, least. a two two for one membership or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a good idea. No, I haven't thought about that. Get a two pack <laughs> of futurists at Costco. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Appreciate it, Sherman. <laughs> All right. Thank yes, you. Yes. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity as well, and uh, really a privilege and honor to uh, now uh, you know having the opportunity to speak with you folks and especially Thomas. And yeah. I've been reading your work over the years. Yeah. Oh well, thank you yeah, very yeah, much. Yeah, I, all right. Thank yes. you. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Sherman Cruz. Don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts so that we can keep bringing you this great content. See you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.